0: 487 years ago yesterday, William Tyndale um, was strangled and burned at the stake. I, for some reason, didn't get the little clicker thing that goes to the next page. You pull that picture up of William Tyndale so we can all look at it. I'm not sure where that thing is. It may have been given to me, and I yet another thing I messed up today. <laughs> He wrote in his introduction to the book of Romans that he had written, um, he wrote that the Holy Spirit, and this is, this is his wording, he says, because this is back in the 1500s, he says, is none otherwise given than by faith only, in that we believe the promises of God without wavering, how that God is true and will fill all his good promises towards us for Christ's blood's sake as it is plain in the first chapter of Romans. I am not ashamed, saith Paul. Of Christ's glad tidings, for it is the power of God unto salvation to as many as believe. And he went on to write that the Spirit cometh by faith only, even so faith cometh by hearing the word or glad tidings of God when Christ has preached how that he is God's son and man also dead and risen again for our sakes. And Tyndale, William Tyndale, was so convinced that preaching the glad tidings, that's the good news, the gospel, preaching that needed to happen for all people he was so convinced of that that he took it upon himself to translate the bible into english for the common man even though the law said all translation of the bible into common language was absolutely forbidden and if you guys do have one of those clickers i'd love to have one go to the next slide please so 487 years ago yesterday william tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake for translating the bible into english for the common man And his final words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And that king was Henry VIII. And later on, Henry VIII would sanction using Tyndale's translation to create basically what was the predecessor to the King James Bible and modern English translations. His prayer was answered slowly. (laughs) We had our college group over at our house on Friday night, 2.42. We were going through Acts 4. It hit me in Acts 4 that the rulers that Peter and John had been pulled up in front, they were the same ones who had killed Jesus, and they knew it. They knew their lives may be over in this moment, and those rulers were astonished at their boldness, and so they walk out of jail after being told to quit preaching the good news, to quit preaching this exclusive claim That there's only one way to God and it's through Jesus. And in a pluralistic culture that was Rome, which is similar to what we have today, an exclusive claim to truth is one that is dangerous and could very well get you killed. And what did they then do? They gathered the believers together and what they did is they prayed. They quoted scripture back to God where the nations the nations rage against God, but God is stronger than them. And then they said, due to this, we see this is your character, God. We see that this is who you are. Because of that, give us boldness to preach this message. And so we see them a chapter later getting put back in jail because they went back out and they preached it. And it's amazing in the middle of the night an angel shows up and lets them out of jail. And his one exhortation is go back to the temple and preach some more. So dawn happens and you find them in the temple on the home turf of the enemy preaching with boldness. And they did it. And I love it. (laughs) And it's convicting. This is the dream. We experience this in the Bible from start to finish. We have enemies, they come up against us, the world, the flesh, the devil, but the overwhelming message from start to finish is that while those enemies may be out to kill us and war against our souls, our God has promised to come through, always, so we should be bold. When was the last time you prayed for boldness to speak the truth of the gospel? We're in the middle of a series on the Old Testament law. We're taking a little bit of a turn this morning in our series. We've been talking about and evaluating the individual laws that were handed down by God to Moses for the people of Israel, and we've highlighted specifics of that. We're going to take a turn into the narrative today, and for the next three weeks, that narrative really is under this umbrella category of rebellion and disobedience. We're going to see today, all of the people together, this big circle of the Israelites disobeying God. And next week, we're going to see a smaller subset, but maybe some people who are more higher up, rebel. And the week after that, we're going to see that rebellion go all the way to the top with Moses himself. And we'll see this gradual descent of the Israelites as their trust in God diminishes and they turn in rebellion and fear so remember where we've been they were slaves in egypt for 400 years god freed them this is not that long ago probably just a few months they saw a bunch of amazing things they saw the plagues they saw god kill the firstborn of every family in egypt they saw the parting of the red sea They saw that this great military power at the time, this is the strongest military entity on the planet, and God annihilated it like it was nothing when he just pushed the sea back over the top of Pharaoh's army and they drowned. And they saw that, and they heard all through there God's promise that there is a land that I have given you, and all you have to do is go enter it, and I'll be with you. And so we're going to enter that narrative today as they come up against the promised land and we're going to see fear and rebellion creep into them. If you uh, look at Psalm 106, we're not going to go there because it's a long psalm, but it outlines this whole rebellion and even some that happens after this, saying time and time again, the Israelites kept forgetting who God is. They kept forgetting what God is all about, his power, his glory, his majesty, his sovereignty. And instead, they only cared about their comfort and security in the desert. They kept telling God, this is too hard. They kept refusing to believe his promises despite the overwhelming evidence of what they had seen. And yet the psalm highlights God's faithfulness despite their rebellion over and over and over again. Later, Paul writes about this same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, these things occurred for us to study as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things just like they did. So he says, based on this example, if you think you're standing firm, this is what he says there. He says, be careful that you don't fall too. And then he says, so flee from idolatry. In Hebrews 4, we're cautioned because we've had the promises of God preached to us too in the same exact way or maybe even in a more revealing way in the person of Jesus of who God is and what he has in store for us. And it cautions us, they didn't listen to that voice then, and there's possibility that you may not listen to that voice now and look what the consequence is. You might be tempted to respond in disobedience much in the same way that they did. So we're going to look at this first instance um, post the giving the law of these people's disobedience. So turn to Numbers 13 in your house bible. That's on page 121. And we're going to go, we'll probably start, let's see, Start in Numbers 13, I think I like the, uh, maybe start around verse 26. So the context here is the Israelites have come up to the Jordan River, they're looking at the land, they see from a distance the land looks good, and so Moses commissions 12 spies to go scout out. Just go go in there incognito, walk across different parts of the land, and bring back a report to us. What's it like? Can we take the people? And so here's what happens. At the end of the 40 days, the spies returned from spying out the land. And they come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of, the, of Israel in the wilderness of Haran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and all along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once to occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. (sighs) Well able to overcome it. I I really love Caleb. (laughs) Then the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, this land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. (laughs) Oh. The disbelief of these people is sometimes shocking to me based on what they've already seen God do. We're like grasshoppers, these people. They're seven feet tall. We can't take it. I love Caleb's faith. Go on to Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the Lord, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. The writer of Hebrews speaks about the promise God had voiced to the Israelites. He quotes Psalm 95 with a warning today. If you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. They had heard God's voice promising to give them this land just as he had promised to deliver them out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh. They'd seen that happen. They'd heard the promise. They hardened their hearts. And the writer of Hebrews quotes that Psalm and he gives us the same warning. Modern day people, he warns us. You've also heard the promise of God. Don't harden your heart as they did. Verse 10, I read it. The congregation wanted to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I've done among them? I will strike them down with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Then Moses intercedes for the people, and he begs God, don't do that, forgive them. And God actually relents. So verse 20, let's jump ahead to there. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went. And his descendants shall possess it. I love Caleb. I love Caleb. And so what ends up happening here is the people freak out. They see, oh, we did disobey. Let's go take the land anyway. But God's presence is no longer with them. That shield of protection that was to be there was taken away because of their disobedience. Moses warns them, God's no longer with you, don't go do this. What he said is going to happen, you're all going to have to die here, it's going to be your kids that inherit this land, and they go up and they attack, and they get defeated, and then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they're all dead, because they were cowards. As I was reading this week, the very last end of the Bible, last chapter, Revelation 21, says those who conquer, God's going to bring him with into the end, the true rest, the Sabbath rest for all believers, for all of eternity. He says, I'm going to be their God, they're going to be my children, but then he says the murderers, the sexually immoral, the disbelieving, they're going to end up in the lake of fire. There was another description he put there that kind of threw me for a little bit, because our modern sensibilities don't necessarily like that, and it's the cowardly. The cowardly, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the disbelieving will end up in the lake of fire. I think it might mess with us, but we do need to grapple with what the Bible is viewing in terms of courage. What is it that we are afraid of? What is it that makes, I like this image just being up here, because what would make you be okay with being in this position that William Tyndale is in? Just to contrast that with the things that we feel afraid of, public speaking. I actually don't like public speaking all that much in a lot of ways. I get clammy and my heart starts beating faster and my mind goes blank sometimes and I wonder what you guys think of me and wonder what communication is gonna come to me afterward because I misspoke because my mind went blank and I didn't know what to say. That's like the top fear that people say is public speaking. Maybe it's death. Maybe it's rejection. Maybe it's the future, the unknown. Um, Are you going to have enough food or money? Is is your future secure? Is this relationship going to happen? Maybe it's a fear of telling your neighbor this exclusive truth claim that there's only one way to God and there's only one way to heaven and it's Jesus I think we also have this like security zone where we feel generally okay as we live but when that's threatened to be taken away we get afraid and I think deep down it's just rooted in trust we struggle with this and I think sometimes we don't believe that if we trust God completely that he'll actually come through that the end result will be good, and so we grab on to the moment and say, well, I can actually deliver better. And I just think Numbers 14.9 should hit all of us. Caleb's plea, only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. part of a worship service a long time ago, over a decade ago, that my father-in-law was leading. And I remember the bulletin that day and the title of the sermon or whatever the content was for that day is, Your God is Too Small. And I went and wrote that down because I didn't want to forget that. Because to be afraid and to rebel against God, I think, is pretty much the same thing. It's not two different things because that is ultimately what Caleb says here. Don't rebel and do not fear. The Lord is with us. Don't fear them. I think to be afraid is the refusal to honor God, or really, ultimately, it's the refusal to see him as he is and what he's capable of, what he's like and what he's capable of. You're saying that God is a small thing. It's smaller than this. This meaning whatever it is that you're clinging to for security that's making you afraid, you're saying this thing is more than God can handle. It's insanity. Because God's glory fills the whole earth. His power shakes the heavens. When God comes in contact with the earth, it quakes. Why? Because it's inferior. It's like the weight of a person getting out onto quarter-inch ice. It will inevitably break. When God comes in contact with the frailty that is this world, this material space, it inevitably just shatters. If you saw his glory and his power, you wouldn't be afraid. It reminds me of Elisha's servant in 2 Kings. The enemy's up against him. He's freaking out. And I just picture Elisha just sighing in frustration. Oh, God, he's just—it's this is debilitating what we're doing right now. Could you just please open his eyes to see reality so he can stop doing this and being afraid? And God opens a servant's eyes and the servant looks. And instead of this army that's afraid, he sees... All of a sudden, he sees the hills are full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And he sees he has no reason whatsoever to be afraid. I think when we're afraid, it's because we've turned our brains off to truth. Faith, courage is thinking about reality. Fear is stopping thinking and diving into insanity Faith is thinking about God more and ultimately thinking about reality more. So let's jump ahead 40 years. We're going to go 45 years to Joshua chapter 14, page 189. While you're getting there, I'm going to get a little drink here. Because honestly, I love the conclusion of Caleb's story, the spy who was so faithful and exhorted the people. And I wanted to jump us ahead across all of this time. So what's happened here is this new generation, so this old generation has all died off except for two people, and that's Caleb and Joshua, the two faithful spies. They're literally the two oldest people of their whole community. Caleb is 85 years old. They've trusted that God would deliver on his promise, they've stepped in faithfully, and they've taken the land, well, almost all of it, because there were a couple of times of disobedience where they didn't conquer the whole thing, but almost all, and here in this chapter, Joshua's dividing up the land amongst the leaders of the tribes, and I don't know the backstory, there's not a whole lot of backstory here, but there is something unique and significant about the dividing of the land to Caleb. Nobody else kind of like brings a protest or says, well, I'd rather have this country versus this country. Um, So I don't really know, but kind of reading between the lines, Caleb feels the need for some reason to remind his old friend, buddy, fellow spy, Joshua, of what God had promised. Because God had promised that Caleb would have a specific piece of land. And it was the land that he had spied out, specifically the mountain country, the hill country. And I wonder if Joshua was looking around and seeing the age of his friend and looking at what hadn't been conquered yet and realizing, oh, the mountains haven't been conquered yet. There's giants still there. Well, I wonder maybe if Caleb would like a nice, easy plot of land so he can, you know, live out his days in comfort. I don't know. It's not in there. That's just me speculating. Don't quote that necessarily verbatim, but I just wonder, because it's the only thing in there of someone reminding Joshua of something, and I just kind of picture Caleb coming up to Joshua and going, hey, buddy, you might be old, but I'm not old. (laughs) At least I don't feel old. I don't want to live in comfort, so... See, so verse six, Caleb comes to him. Verse seven, he says, I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed. The Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, poking his finger in the chest of his old friend, you, You're old, but I'm not. <laughs> right? He says, Now behold, Joshua. The Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. (laughs) Love him. 85. I'm not finished yet. Everyone else is finished. You guys can take a a nap in your Lazy Boy recliner in front of Amazon Prime. I'm not going to do that. Everyone else is scared. Everyone else is scared. I'm not scared. Everyone else thinks this is done. I'm not done. God placed a picture of the future in me, and I'd rather die chasing that picture than live settling for something less. Give it to me. It's mine. (laughs) Then Joshua blessed him, verse 13, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb. I love that. Because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Joshua did what? He blessed Caleb. How did he bless him? He blessed him by giving him the mountains that hadn't been conquered yet, where giants still live, where he was going to go out and face possible death. I think we, will speak for me, miss this when we look for a blessing from God. And I think, God bless me. And in my head, I'm listening to the voices in the culture that are telling me, blessing looks like I get stuff, I get comfort, I get fame, I get money, safety, um, reputation. It's going to be easy. But blessing... Particularly in the Old Testament context, usually is in conjunction with not just giving somebody things. That sometimes comes along with it, but it's giving somebody a purpose. First time we read that word, that Hebrew word in the Bible says God blessed Adam and Eve by telling them to go, be fruitful, multiply, exercise dominion over the earth. The blessing comes with a purpose, the blessing is a mission. God says, go do what I created you to do, and he blesses us, you and me, by inviting him in to be part of what he's doing, like the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Look who I am. That's reality. No one else has more authority than Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Talk about a purpose, but also a battle. What a blessing it is that God has promised to be with us always to the end of the age, and yet it comes with a massive weight. Caleb looked at mountains full of giants, and we're looking at a world that's against us, and we're to go out into it and preach an exclusive, claim of absolute truth to a world that probably wants to kill us for saying it and somehow that word is supposed to go out that good news is supposed to go out and people are going to respond to it and then we have another task in front of us and that is to fight the flesh in that person and help them learn what God is all about and learn to resist that flesh And be filled with the Spirit instead. And observe all that God has commanded. What a task. Do you identify that as a blessing? Is my question. What happens in your heart when you consider that? (laughs) Maybe take a step back from the Great Commission and just say, What happens in your heart when hard stuff comes? When it seems like the world, the devil, even your own inner desires, that flesh turns against you and everything becomes a raging battle. What happens in your heart when you're on night three of insomnia and you're questioning whether God exists at all because your body is failing you? What happens? When William Tyndale was arrested, he was put in a cold and dingy prison he was looking ahead to the upcoming winter and realized it was going to be real cold and just as paul did in second timothy he was anticipating it and asked he wrote a letter and he asked his friend for his cloak and for his books so he could continue studying he asked for his hebrew bible so he could continue studying he hadn't quite finished the old testament yet and he's sitting there in prison suffering looking at the purpose that God has given him and he's unable to stop Fox's book of martyrs talks about him and tells us that in this time he converted the jail keeper the keeper's daughter and others of the household preached the gospel to them the apostle Paul was in prison in Rome and while he was there experiencing similar things extreme hardship same thing happened He wrote to the church in Philippi, have joy that I'm in prison because it has served to advance the gospel. Look, my jailers, my captors, even the very security detail that services Caesar's household has gotten saved. Meaning the gospel goes from Paul in prison into Caesar's own household because Paul's in prison. And he wrote this to that church. As he's sitting there in that space, facing possible or even probable execution, he said, is it my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, hey, I don't know what's coming next, but I have an expectation for it. I expect that I'm going to need full courage. Christ is going to be honored in my body, whether by life or death. So for me to live is Christ and to die as gain. Most of us look ahead to what's coming in our life journey. I think we have expectations as well. Expectations probably more so of comfort, success, glory, money, power, reputation. Paul's like, no, I, I expect to need courage. And I'm betting my life on the fact that God's going to deliver that courage when I'm desperate for it. So just to let you guys in on my life a little bit, I took a sabbatical this summer and I've had a bunch of people ask me what it was that I came back learning. I feel like I had a sort of combined learning experience of the two months of sabbatical and then the time that's been since I got back. I entered my sabbatical right after a conversation, actually a couple of conversations that I think set the tone for my two months off. My two months seeking god for kind of this pivotal point of what's the rest of my life going to look like in terms of ministry and those conversations really revolved around the american dream in my opinion friends of mine who have big dreams for career and housing and budget and family and education and sports and as these things are being unpacked for me it feels like this really big dream and these great plans and even combined with spreadsheets to accompany the plan and i honestly was getting depressed by it because i felt like it was tragically small And I feel like God did speak to me this summer. The word action kept coming to mind. In the midst of that, the conviction that we've fallen for a teeny tiny tragic vision that American culture has handed us that I don't want to fall for. I don't want to end up an overwhelmed suburban dad struggling to keep my life together. I want more than safety and security for my family just sitting in that space waiting to die behind my white picket fence. (laughs) God poked at me this summer, made me realize we've got a great church full of wonderful, faithful people. And yet even through that, I think there's a sense I have that hearts in this room are very heavy and weary. There's a sense of struggle. There's an opposition from the outside, and I think there's an opposition from the inside of us i been asking myself this question, why are our minds and our hearts and our emotions under duress all the time, at least it seems like? Why do we feel so afflicted when we're reading the news and paying attention to what's going on in government? Maybe it feels like a struggle and a war because it is. It's heavy. And I wonder if maybe some of us have lost sight of what's all over the New Testament, and that is we're in a war for our souls. Aaron Ritter came back from his sabbatical last year, and his word that he came back with was abide. And I'm coming back with, hey, we're in a war. And those two two things go right together. I'll unpack that just a little bit. Martin Luther King Jr., he said, inside every person it's like a civil war is raging. Most of us feel this. We have conflicts of desire. We've got inner tensions. We've got opposition. We try to follow Jesus and do the right thing, and we feel like there's been a target put on us. Suddenly, we're getting attacked, and everything is going wrong. As soon as we try to do the right thing, try to love someone, love like Jesus, there's this, like, oppositional force, and yet God is calling us to move forward with courage and take action and face adversity. But somehow we've fallen for the idea that if I get this Jesus thing right... Go to small group, I read my Bible when I need to, and I do the things. It'll make life easier. And then we hit struggles and resistance. And somehow we feel like, oh, this is just my own failure. I got to get a hold of myself. Or maybe God's just trying to teach me something that I need to push through to get to the other side. And so we sit down, we pray, God, help me get through this to the other side, as if the ultimate goal of the comfort and security and ease that's on the other side of the battle is actually like. The goal, the thing, because a pain free life really is my heaven? Seriously, why are we falling for that? I don't know anyone on the planet who has successfully lived a pain free life. (laughs) I went to the doctor this week because my knee is falling apart and I can't walk up and down hills very well. That's new for my life. I'm falling apart. I don't like that. (laughs) It's not pain free. And that's kind of what I came out of my sabbatical thinking, and then I, like I said, there was kind of a continuation of what I was learning, because I was like, well, God, what does that mean? And then my family jumped right into what I think is a battle. We've been ramping up our schedule over the course of the fall now. My kids have hit middle school. We've been in the middle of just a bunch of intense conversations as a family about our values evaluating commitments, responsibilities, evaluating what success looks like as we enter into these years that just have so many demands on our lives and souls. What does it look like to follow Jesus together as a family in this season of life and do it well as the world presses in on us? Because I think it's getting harder. The American dream was kind of easy to sort of coexist in with Christianity, but American Christianity is a new thing now. Jesus is doing something different than what we experienced in the 90s, where we could sort of casually coexist with our culture. We can't do that anymore. Technology, the government, we got everything is fighting against us right now. And that's exactly what Jesus promised. I think we've been insulated from that for a generation and have missed a whole lot of it not that there haven't been hard things but we are entering into a new season of our world and it's demanding a ton of us but i want my kids in the midst of this as they face a new world to see a compelling vision one that matters and ten thousand years from now when we're enjoying eternity together we'll look back on and be like man that was a rush what a ride crazy I keep this quote with me I have for years because I think it defines what Sarah and I are attempting to do in our parenting. This is Andy Wilson, notes from a Tilter World. If you haven't read that book, you should pick it up. It's great. He says, the world is rated R and no one's checking IDs. Do not try to make it G by imagining the shadows away. Do not try to hide your children from the world forever. Do not try to pretend that there's no danger. Train them. Give them sharp eyes and bellies full of laughter. Make them dangerous. Make them yeast. And when they've grown, they will pollute the shadows. Isn't that inspiring? Or as I saw someone else put it, instead of being terrified that you're having to raise your kids or live in times when the world is in turmoil, be proud of raising dragon slayers in a time where there are actual dragons. How many times has God led you to the edge of something amazing and beautiful, of beautiful vision for what life could be? And we're just like the Israelites, and we shrink back in fear, like, God couldn't possibly want me to have to fight a battle. And then we just turn right back to the American dream, compromise, comfort, security, sitting there waiting to die without a purpose but like the israelites and the warning in the book of hebrews that's so poignant for us today the promise will shrivel and die and turn against us because you can't chase the world's dreams and chase god's dreams one of those is a comfortable way to live your life for a season the other one is a fight. But if you're a follower of Jesus, it's a fight you were born for, just like Caleb was born for. That he said he felt all the way down deep in his bones. This promise that he'd been clinging to for 45 years. I have an inheritance, and yes, it's going to be a battle to go take it. But God is with me in the fight. God promises he goes with you always until the very end of the age. And like Paul, sitting in prison, unsure of the future, you can be confident that God will provide the courage you need for the moment I want to live like Caleb. He looked at God and saw reality. That God was glorious and sovereign and trustworthy. I would submit that we modern people have an access to a view of God that, not even caleb had access to that could potentially make us even more strong i think we have an even greater resource than he did when he looked at god because the fact is we feel it this battle is in us it's not always an opposition from the outside this war is right here there's a dividing line between good and evil inside each one of us that we're fighting all the time martin luther king jr civil wars raging There's giants inside of us and mountains to take. And the fact is, no matter what happened with the law, there was no ultimate way for the Israelites to live 100% faithfully and have access to God and have their, all of that be made right. I love how Hebrews just unpacks that from their disobedience into unpacking this idea of a Sabbath rest that we can enter into and this work so hard, but Jesus did all of it for us and secured our redemption. Where we deserved a punishment for our disobedience as we're sitting right up against whatever our version is of that promised land and failing to take those mountains, Jesus, he says, Caleb was wholly faithful. Jesus was even more wholly faithful, and he lived that all the way to death. So that We didn't have to die the death that we deserve for our unbelief, our shrinking back in fear, and our lack of courage. Caleb, you see, Caleb is this picture for us, just as Paul wrote. This is to give us an example of what happened. Caleb's just a little picture of Jesus for us. Where he just dove right into that battle, the giant that is the sin that exists within us, and as we shrunk back, as we disobeyed, and while we were still enemies of him, he died for us in our place and took that punishment for us and his blood covered over all of it so that we could be innocent and pure and clean And even better than that, because that's cool, but that's just like the first part of the gospel. Even better than that, what it means is now we have the presence of God dwelling in us, and you want to talk about power to give you courage to face the battles that come your way. The Holy Spirit is unmatched in power, and he dwells inside you because of what Jesus has done for you and I think. Caleb was able to look back on the miracle of their salvation that had brought them out of Egypt, you know, the parting of the Red Sea and everything else. When we look at the miracle that Jesus accomplished in covering over sin and defeating death itself and what that has brought us into and what we have access to, it's an even greater evidence of reality for us to cling to, to have our eyes open, So we can see what this thing is that's facing us is nothing compared to the glorious power of our God. I love that. God's heart for us and his love for us displayed in Jesus' sacrifice is the thing that we have access to that even Caleb didn't. Paul wrote about that in Romans. He said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Look at that evidence. Look what he did. Look back on the evidence. He saved us out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. Look at this. God didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You think the American dream or whatever it is that you're craving is something that's going to satisfy you? It's nothing compared to being graciously given all things along with Christ. And so Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What does that mean? It means Jesus is the place where I found real life. He's the singular cause that's worth living and dying for. Band, you guys can come on back up. Our world is obsessed with living longer and living more comfortably and acquiring possessions and reputation. But this whole passage, I think, is giving us a glimpse of how to live better. It's telling us how to live courageously without fear. Why we can understand what a blessing this battle, this purpose is, and how we can run straight towards us, towards it rather than away from it because we have no fear in death. Hebrews 2 talks about Jesus becoming human so he could become killable. Only by dying could he break the power of the devil, the one who had the power of death. And in defeating death, he delivered us from the fear of death because even if we die we live forever so Paul says for me to live is Christ to die is gain and so with Jesus it's not a choice between life and death it's a choice between life and life because he knows Paul says you know he knows he's going to breathe his last breath and an instant later he's going to breathe his first breath in eternity and it's awesome it's gain (laughs) it's so good and so when I'm laying in bed last night struggling, and Sarah and I are talking about all the weights and pressures of everything that's advancing on us, and the temptation to settle for something less than following Jesus fully. We sat and prayed. Um, Tim Constance sent this to me. I just want to close with this. Yesterday, we had a great conversation this week. Uh, what it means to look at God in the midst of struggle and abide. You know, so like I said, Aaron came back from his sabbatical with the word abide. And I think that was a really great moment for our church to understand strength, purpose, life. Comes from being the branch attached to the vine and just simply being there. But I want to just enter into, submit, maybe just a slight revision for our next year. Because we're in a war. Tim, thanks for sending this to me. I would wear that shirt. (laughs) It's simple. Stick with Jesus. And maybe just a couple practicals here. Because it doesn't take spreadsheets and all kinds of crazy stuff. It takes reading the word. So that when the devil whispers lies into your ear, just like he did to Jesus in the desert when he was tempting him, You speak that scripture right back to him. Confess your sin. Let your flesh feel the pain that that might cause you. And it'll just get squished. Try fasting. It's another thing that might subjugate your flesh a little bit. I honestly think that the most provocative, revolutionary thing that we can do in this world to combat what the world is throwing at us is to be part of a local church and commit to it for life and stir one another up to seeing the truth of who Jesus is what he's bought for us and how every other truth claim every other thing tempting us it's just pure insanity so we're going to sing a song here And while we're doing it, I'd love for us just to take communion. Just together as we sing this song. You'll find the elements in front of you. If you need a gluten-free wafer, just put your hand up and someone will bring you one. And what this ceremony really is, is just a thing for us as we live in this material world. Just like Caleb was looking back on miracles and we look back on what Jesus has done for us. Sometimes we need a tangible reminder And since we're physical, we're human. Just like Jesus became human so he could become killable, we have physical reminders, we have taste buds. And that's one of the things that I think is brilliant about God who brings us these things to just remind us of this great salvation. Israelites need to be reminded they are saved from Egypt. We need to be reminded that we've been saved from our sin. And that's what this does. If you haven't trusted in that, there's actually a word in the book of Corinthians that says it might be dangerous for you to take that. And so I I would ask that if you haven't trusted in that, that you would refrain today. But if you've believed that Jesus died on that cross and his blood was shed, his body was broken, I would love for us to take this together. The wafer, the bread represents his body broken and the juice represents his blood poured out to buy us an inheritance. And let's just reflect on that and let the eternal weight of glory that's coming for us one day 10,000 years from now the truth the vivid picture of that reality let that just address the current insanity that we're when we're getting afraid and let it shrink so instead of god being small he's put in his rightful place and he's huge and the mountains become small and the giants become small and we look ahead at the battle, we see this is a blessing because God's with us.